Would you remain standing? We turn to our text today in honor of the word. Let's stand together. We're reading through Matthew chapter 24. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. And today we're going to study verses 45 through 51. Hear the word of the living God. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Would you join me in prayer again? Father, as we come once again on this Lord's Day, to study your scriptures, Lord, to, to see Christ, the living word, as recorded for us here in Matthew's Gospel. Lord, this is a deep passage. It's deeply profound, deeply impacting, deeply sobering. Lord, it's intended to open our eyes and wake us up to some things that perhaps we've fallen asleep to. So, Lord, I pray today that you would help each of our hearts, to grasp the truth and to see Jesus in all His glory today. Lord, use me as your servant to encourage and challenge your people on this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, as we're continuing to go through this Olivet Discourse, Pastor David preached the previous few verses and titled his sermon, Prepare for His Return. And that was the thrust of the text last week, that Jesus is coming back. He will one day return. And today we're going to be looking at how do we walk out that admonition, that call to prepare. Uh, when it comes to the return of Christ, we kind of see kind of two ends of the spectrum, if you will, at times with Christians where you have some who are seemingly unsure or, or perhaps unconcerned about his return. They don't th think about it much, don't talk about it much, which perhaps even reflects the belief. Do you really believe that Jesus will return? Are you convinced that as sure as he came the first time, he will come again? Something, well, it's been so long. Let me assure you, according to the word of Jesus Christ and his promise, Jesus is coming again. And you have others who perhaps are, I would say, overly concerned with his return in the sense of getting overly fascinated with the mystery and the challenges of how we understand and perceive the end times and the second coming. And we can come to Christ, and, and we've seen this even in history and over the past 
say, 40, 50, 60 years where you've had great movements of God, where many people come, come to Christ and their lives are changed and, and transformed and they just love Jesus Christ. They love the Lord. They, they serve Him, but then they dive into Scriptures at times and they begin to get, uh, how would I say, maybe their love for Jesus turns into more of a fascination revolving around dates and times and events and circumstances and even different leaders throughout the ages, especially the modern times, have risen up and different conferences are held and people start making predictions and they start putting up billboards and setting dates for the return of Christ and saying, he's coming on this certain date. Begin mixing the scriptures with the nightly news, combining them together. And none of that is helpful. It works people up into some sort of a frenzied crisis. And so today I would say, let's avoid both extremes. Let's avoid both uh, sides of the uh, pendulum swinging. <laughs> and so today we come once again to, the, it's not the end of the Olivet Discourse, it's going to continue into chapter 25 with parables. But what I want to say is the vital thrust of what we've been studying over these last few weeks is not speculation, but rather a call to readiness. This whole passage has been very practical. It's not intended for our speculation, for our argumentation, or for our division. It's intended for practical application, which means faithful living. That's where Jesus headlines in today's passage. We've got to get that when it comes particularly to this text, that the real impact on the lives of, of the first hearers of the Olivet Discourse and 2,000 years later, our hearing of it, it's not actually going to be discovered. The, the, the real impact isn't going to be discovered in the depth of our knowledge, but in the energy and the extent of our action. What are you going to do with this understanding? So Jesus is now turning to the question of his return and answering how to be ready. He told us, he called us to watch. He, he, told, he called us to be prepared. How should we do that? How do we live? How do we live in light of his promised return? And in hearing this, some of us need to actually wake up today. We need to open our eyes to, to seeing the, the, the depth of what he's calling us to as Christians. Some need to make a decision today. A decision that you will be faithful to the Lord no matter the cost. Again, because as sure as Jesus was born, Jesus will return. He said in Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse in chapter 13 of Mark, verse 33 to 37, be on guard, keep awake. We learned what that means last week. It, it, it's this term of vigilance. Keep awake. Why? For you do not know when the time will come. Verse 35 of Mark 13 says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. I wonder how many who profess Christ today will be found sleeping on the day of his return. And so look at the emphasis he says in verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Keep awake, stay awake, stay awake. Why do the disciples need to hear that? Why do we need to hear that? Because as we just sang, 
prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Just take my heart and seal it, Lord. Thy courts above. In Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse in Luke 21, 34, he writes it this way, but watch yourselves. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So the admonition, a call to be prepared is to open your eyes, to stay awake, to stay ready, to stay vigilant. To don't, don't allow yourself to slumber off into sin into cares of this life. How? What does that look like, right? We all want to know. I want to be there. What does that look like? Thankfully, Jesus tells us. And that's our text today. How do you prepare for his return? How do you watch? How do you wait for the return of Christ? You do so being busy with the master's business. The watching we're called to isn't the kind of watching that looks like sitting at a window and just looking outside. It's an active looking. It's an active watching. It's the watch of a sentinel. It's the watch of a, of, of a soldier. It's the watch of a servant. It's not one eye always up in the sky, but it's always being ready by doing that which God has called you to do. And being ready, as we look at that today, it doesn't mean anything else than that which he's called you to do. So let's look once again at our text. And we're going to see four things in front of us this morning about the servants. That's Christians. That's, if you're a Christian, that's you. You're a servant. We're going to see the requirements of a servant, the responsibilities of a servant, the reliability of a servant, and then we get to close with the reward of a servant because the reward is great. It's a beautiful passage in front of us. Let's look at point one, the requirements of a servant. Verse 45, Jesus begins by saying this, who then is the faithful and wise servant? Who is the faithful and wise servant? And in verse 48, the first part of 48, he, he begins this in this parable, which is what he's using. He's using a parable to help us understand what watchfulness looks like. What does it mean to wait for his return? And he uses this parable of two different servants, and he's contrasting the two servants. In verse 48, we see the other servant. First is the faithful and wise, then is the one that he calls wicked. That wicked servant. The word servant is helpful for us to understand right from the outset. And it's actually a bit lighter in the English than it actually is in the Greek. The literal word for Greek is slave. And there's very few translations that will actually translate that. And perhaps that has to do with our, under, our, our difficulties with the connotation of what happened with American slavery. And that certainly was a very dark period on our, on our history. But the concept is slavery. It's, it's not an employee. It's actually someone that is owned by someone else. Doulos is the Greek word. It comes from the word deo, which means to bind it means you are bound to another in servitude. And it conveys the idea of, of the slave's close and, and binding ties with his master. That you belong, the slave belongs 
to the master and therefore is obligated to and desiring to do the will of the master in a permanent relationship of servanthood. That's the picture here in this parable that Jesus is telling. It does away with the myth of autonomy. Especially among American Christians, we struggle with this. Why? Because we're Americans. We love freedom, right? And we should. It's a blessing. Amen? God is, brings, is a, gifts us with this freedom. It's an amazing thing. However, before we're Americans, we're Christians. And we understand that we are slaves of Jesus Christ. You say, I don't want to be anyone's slave. I'm an American. You're either a slave of Christ, a very good master, or you're a slave of sin. A master that will destroy you. There are only two options. Jesus destroys the myth of autonomy here. You are not autonomous. I am not autonomous. We are creatures, not creator. And here, Jesus describes this, what, what watching, what waiting for his return, what being prepared for it looks like, what readiness looks like, and he gives these requirements of slaves of the master, servants of the master. The first requirement is faithfulness. Who is the faithful servant? Pistos. It comes from the Greek word peitho, which means to, to persuade or to in, induce one by words to, to, to believe or to have confidence in. And so in this context here, it means someone who's trustworthy, someone who's, who's dependable. The, the servants that Jesus is talking about are, are reliable. They're able to be relied on in, in their honesty, in their truthfulness, in their labors, in their work. You can count on them to provide whatever is asked for or, or needed. These are the marks of a, of a servant of God. One who's completely devoted to the master. Here to do the master's business it implies this long, continued, and, and steadfast fidelity to the master whom you are bound to. I ask you, do these things describe your, your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? As you examine your own heart and your life and your actions, do you, like the Apostle Paul, consider yourself a slave of Christ? Oswald Chambers wrote these words, speaking of this faithful servants. He says, the only way to wait for the second coming is to watch that you do what you should do. So that when he comes is a matter of indifference. It's the attitude of a child, certain that God knows what he's about. When the Lord does come, it'll be as natural as breathing. God never does anything hysterical, and he never produces hysterics. <laughs> it's the attitude of, of, a, of a John Wesley who, when asked years ago after traveling around in his itinerant preaching by horseback, and someone once asked him, what if Christ is to come tomorrow? What would you do? Or what if he's coming next week at the end of the week? What if you have one week left? What would you do? And Wesley pulls his diary or his calendar out from his saddlebag and he says well 
I would go here and I would go there and all, all, okay, I would keep all my appointments. I wouldn't change a thing. I'm being faithful to the master. I'm engaged in the master's business. Why would I get frantic? Oh, he's coming next week. I'm doing what he's called me to do. J.I. Packer says this about faithfulness. Faithfulness is our business. Truthfulness is an issue, issue that we must be content to leave to God. And that's something incredibly important for us to remember. Because a lot of times, let me take it back to us as Americans, very success-driven, very goal-oriented people. We like accomplishing things. We want to get things done. I know I do. And it's a struggle at times to, to remember it's not about my success. It's about my faithfulness. Success is in the hands of God. I'm a slave to the master, and it's my joy to serve him faithfully. Charles Spurgeon said these words, I know of nothing which I would choose to have as the subject of my ambition for life than to be kept faithful to my God till death. Is that your cry? Is that your heart? Is that your mantra? Is that what you want from the depths of your being? I, I just want to be faithful to the end. Life includes much suffering, much pain, much op opposition. What do we do? Be faithful. Be faithful. The second thing he says is be wise. The faithful and wise servant. This describes the servant. This, this, this servant is sensible. This servant is prudent comes from a Greek word that means to, to think, to, to have a mindset related to, to thinking things out and through. The, the root word that it comes from actually is, come, is the word we get where it comes from, diaphragm, from the depth of your being, you actually consider these things. Your, your wisdom is evident. The quality of your thinking, it, 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 it's insight and understanding combined with, with wisdom. The servant is not only faithful, the servant is wise. This certainly would necessitate a study of Scripture and an understanding of God's Word. The way we grow wise is through the Word of God. Through faithful labor and study and reading. The wise servant is just such. These are the requirements of a slave of Christ. Two slaves. What is required? Faithful and wise. And in contrast to the faithful and wise servant is what it means to be wicked. That's what he calls him. The wicked servant. That's a deep word that has a whole lot underneath its umbrella, doesn't it? Requirements of a servant. Faithful and wise. Secondly, the responsibility of a servant. He goes on and says, Whom his master, who is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Do you see how Christ here in the parable is understanding that the master's in charge and the master parcels out, if you will, these particular areas of service for each believer? And in this case, the, the master puts the slave in charge of his household in providing food for the house. The idea 
of the faithful and wise steward is the idea that you have responsibilities that have been given to you and you faithfully and wisely act them out, follow them through. The Apostle Paul understood this. He describes himself this way and, and the apostles this way in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2 when he says these words, this is how one should regard us as slaves or servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Paul understood that he had been given a stewardship in his understanding and knowledge of Christ, and he was to steward that understanding and that gift with much faithfulness and much wisdom. The requirement leads to the responsibility, which goes back to the requirement of faithfulness. And that's not just Paul. And that's not just the, the, the servant in the parable. <coughs> that's every Christian. Every Christian has similar general areas of service that we're all to embrace. So we all have a calling to live as Christians, things that would include being lights and shining our lights in the darkness, being ambassadors for Christ in a dark world. The call of Christian witness. That's, that's for all of us, not just certain Christians. It's something we all share. We might... We, we, we might do it different and in different ways and different means, but it's, it's part of the Christian faith. We're also called to be a people of prayer. It's not optional for the Christian. It's not like a, a, a secondary thing. It's primary. It's necessary. We're called to be people of prayer. We're called to pray instead of worry and to pray without ceasing. We're called upon to pray for the furtherance of the gospel in the world, to pray for God's provisions in the varied needs that we face in this life. This is the call of every Christian to be a person of prayer, a servant of prayer. We're called to give. We're called to give with generosity, with a holy hilarity, the Bible would say, in order to meet the pressing needs and to support the ongoing work of the gospel throughout the world. We're also called to join in fellowship with one another as Christians. To serve one another. To bear each other's burdens. To forgive each other. To encourage each other. To accept one another for Christ's sake. It's a high calling and it's the calling of every Christian. There is no such thing as an individual Christian. None of us stands alone. We are together in this. The call of Christian fellowship. We're going to approach, again, these areas in different ways, but the important thing is that we engage regularly in these and all of the general callings of Christians everywhere. But then, every Christian is also given a, a particular special area or areas, I say, of responsibilities in your service. Now, when we serve Christ, we certainly don't add anything to his worth or to his wealth or to, to his stature by our service. It's a work of grace. It's a gift of grace to serve the king of kings. Amen? We serve because we love him, because we desire from our love for him to be the faithful and, and, and wise servant. And just as the master puts his slave in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time, here was this special, particular service that would have differed from other servants in the house. Someone else the master would have put in charge of the fields or of, 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 of the looms or of caring for the children. 
this particular servant he singles out for the feeding of the household. We see in, in Mark's um, uh, passage of this discourse in Mark 13, 34, he says it this way. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. There's another job. You got the one responsible for food. You got the, the one responsible for keeping the door and all of these things. It just shows us God creates us as his people, and he, then he recreates us as his people through, through the finished work of Christ, by grace through faith, we become Christians. We're, we're transformed from the inside out. And now we have a calling. And our callings are going to be all the same in the sense of what we talked about. But you have an individual particular calling that God has for your life. Particular gifts that you've been given that I don't have. Particular vocation. Vocare is the Latin word that we get our, our word vocation from. It means calling. Think about what you do every day. We talked a lot about this in our worldview study back in, in January. Remember the quote from Abraham Kuyper? There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. As a servant, as a slave, you belong to him, and therefore everything you have and everything you are and everything you do belongs to him. And so you, when you look at your particular gifts, you, you can't look at them as they're mine. They're not for you. They were given to you for the master's use and for the blessing of the body. We see this in, in Exodus. Remember when we studied this in January, Exodus 31, where God calls Bezalel? And he fills them with his spirit in order to do all these things. Let me read it. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've called you by name, Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. We highlighted when we talked about this passage that this is the first instance of anyone being described as being filled with the Spirit in the Bible. And it wasn't a theologian. It was a craftsman. It was a carver of wood and gemstones. It was a builder. It was a man working with his hands to create magnificent gifts. You build things and construct things. You think, well, that's, that's kind of temporal, you know, earthly stuff. No, God says done for him. Everything you do has worth and value. This is our calling. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So all Christians are called, and we're all called to labor faithfully, wisely in our calling, whatever it is, whether it's politics or law or real estate or, or carpentry or medicine or, or, or manufacturing or laying bricks or, 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 or working in a retail store or changing diapers. Whatever God calls you to do, you do it for Him. 
with all your might. Because all work is full of glory. Now it's only a glory apprehended by faith. And so this is the gift of, of the Christian. The calling of the Christian. And it doesn't make you any better. It doesn't mean that you pound nails better than the, the carpenter who is not a Christian. But it means the value, the eternal worth and value of the Christian doing it as unto the Lord. Goes so much further than you can ever imagine. We're to be about the business of God. What is the business? Well, Martin Luther said God himself milks the cows through the vocation of the milkman. So whatever you do, do to the Lord. Wisely, faithfully. And yet, we can also have a tendency, and I, I've pushed this in my preaching for many years because I think it's, in generally speaking, in, in the Christian community, it's downplayed. What's upplayed is, is if you're really going to do something for the Lord, you, you have to go be a missionary or you have to go be a pastor. Or, and what it's done is created like second-class Christians. Like the full-time ministry, that's where it's at. And you're lesser down here. And I say no. Why? Because God's Word says no. My office is important. And my work is important, but your work is no less important. So do it faithfully. And yet, in saying that, sometimes I get concerned that we can also then approach that and say, yes, go for it. And then we neglect the, the church work. We neglect the missions work. We neglect the things that matter and the things that happen even on a regular basis in order to, to provide for the people of God. Think of what it takes even to put on a simple gathering like this. There's a lot that happens behind the scenes that you might even be completely unaware of. Many people serving, many people showing up early, many people coming to get things done and to, to make sure that little details that make things run as smoothly as possible happen. That's always important. Let me, let me illustrate it. If I shut this, I can't. Can I mute this? Can you hear me now? How important is the sound? <laughs> you know, thank God for Neil, who filled in today because Amy was scheduled to work and she wasn't feeling well. And Neil had a servant's heart and he's like, I'll do it. There's a lot of things every week. And by the way, we always need more help in all of those areas. If you're waiting for me to, or Pastor David to ask, here's your ask. We need help. <laughs> In a lot of things. Areas of service generally do run along the lines of spiritual gifts that are imparted graciously by the Holy Spirit. Do you understand? Have you prayed through that? Where has God gifted you? It's something you should study. Something you should not only study, but then you should act on. Faithfully serving the body of Christ. Don't hard, hoard your gift. Don't hide your gift. Requirements of a servant are to be faithful and wise, and the responsibilities of a servant are to fulfill what he's or she is called to. Consider the contrast in verse 48, the second part of the wicked servant. He says to himself, what does he say? 
My master is delayed. My master is delayed. He's taken too long. And remember, the master's gone on a journey. He left him in charge of some things. Maybe he was doing it for a little while, and all of a sudden, man, he's been gone a long time. He said he'd be back, but I don't, I don't feel that. I don't see that. Sure seems like he might just take a long time, and, and, and what ends up happening is he, he, what he's illustrating here is a delay of recognizing God in Christ and then submitting and surrendering to him fully. So this is the display of autonomy. The wicked servant becomes autonomous to say, I don't need to do what I'm supposed to do. Yes, I have a calling. Yes, I have responsibilities. Yes, there are requirements, but the master's been gone a long time. So I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to be my own person. I'm going to go my own road. I'm going to neglect the duties that he's put in front of me. So we come to number three, the reliability of the servant. Jesus comes back to the faithful and wise servant in verse 46, and he says, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. You see the emphasis there is on action. What, what, what does the master see? The action. He comes and finds him busy doing what he was called to do. Right action. Not just any action, because in verse 49, we, just, we see action too, don't we? Of the wicked servant. We see him take action. What's his action? Oh, master's been gone. I'm going to do what I want. He begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. You say, why single those two things out? Because in the ancient world, those two things were the primary signal of, of depravity. It encapsulated a depraved life. A life of, 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 of violence and a life of drunkenness. A life of debauchery. It would signal this is wickedness here. He leaves the master's call and he goes and does his own thing. Why? He's taking too long. My master's delayed. I'm going to do what I want. Violence and carousing. A life of, of careless, willful, unpreparedness. Remember the thrust of this whole passage is be ready. He's coming back. Be ready. Well, what does that look like? I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like this. This carousing attitude, this violent attitude, this carelessness with which you, you understand the promise of your master. And it is a willfulness. And understand that sin is willfulness. When we define sin biblically, it's certainly correct to say it's missing the mark. That is a very biblical, correct definition of sin. But in Scripture, we also see sin is blatant willfulness. And so you can't just look and say, oh, I made a mistake. You wanted that. You wanted that. You chose to be your own master. Or so you think. Jesus here 
looks at the blessed servant in his reliability. The blessed, happy. It's the word happy, but not how we usually see happy, because our happiness usually depends on circumstantial things. The ups and downs of life. Oh, I'm happy when everything's good, and I'm sad when things are bad. This is a true happiness. This is a joy that lasts. Why? Because it's a happiness that's rooted in who you are as a servant of Christ. Are you kidding me? I get to serve the Lord Christ. I get to be His. How is that even possible? How did He do that? How did He change me so deeply? How did He change my desires? How did He change my loves, my affections? He's amazing. What do, what, what do you want me to do, Lord? What a privilege. That's the reliable servant. It's the blessed servant. He's reliable. He recognizes his blessedness. And out of his blessedness, it says the master finds him. When he comes back, he finds him what? So doing. He finds him doing what he ought to do. And this is where we need to be careful because we can't look at the return of Christ as something that we get all worked up about in the sense of, oh, oh, I better start doing something. That's what Jesus is pointing away from. He's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm not teaching you this to freak you out. Now, if you're the wicked servant, maybe you should be a little freaked out. <laughs> I'm coming to that in a moment. But if you're his... You're his. It's a call to remember. Lord, I'm prone to wander, and I do feel it. So I'm asking you once again today, and this ought to be our prayer every day. Here's my heart. Take and seal it for all your purposes. The servant is faithful and wise. Those are his requirements. The servant is responsible. He's been given a calling. He's responsible to walk that out. And the servant is reliable in following through on what he's been called to do. Fourthly, the reward of a servant. Listen to this in verse 47. This is incredible. Jesus says, truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Who's the faithful and wise servant? Who's the one when his master returns, finds him doing what he was called to do? Oh, he's going to get this amazing reward. He will set him over all his possessions. Paul understood this, the Apostle Paul. You want to look at a life of marks of all of these four things here? Just look at Paul, this great man of God. He was an amazingly faithful servant of God, slave of God. He says when he writes to his young mentor, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, because you think, that's great, Paul, because look what you did. You're an amazing 
amazing man. And Paul adds on, for our sake, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's another word for saying those who can't wait to see him. Those who say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Not out of an attempt to escape the hardships of the calling that God has given me. But simply because you love them. There's been a few times in our marriage, thankfully only a few, that Lily has gone on a trip without me. I hate it. <laughs> it's horrible. It's horrendously bad. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I don't know what to do with myself. I'm so lost and confused. I mean, I sit there at the fridge, and I'm like, what do I do with this? And, I, and, I, and I'm lonely, and I'm irritated and irritable, and I'm just like, when is she coming home? Not so much, though, because of the food or this, that. I miss her. I just miss her presence. I want her right next to me. I, I, I want her there. And I hate when she's miles away. So I love her, and so I want her there. And it's so sweet when she returns. How much more? How much more the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Do you love his appearing? Are you, does it move you to think that he could come today? Does it get you excited? Or do you get nervous? I'm not doing what I should do. Well, repent and believe the gospel. Get your eyes where they need to be. Trust his grace. Let him renew your spirit. And in the end, there's a reward for the faithful servant. Did you notice what the reward is here in verse 47 of Matthew? Here's a reward. He'll set him over all his possessions. So it's kind of interesting that the faithfulness in one form of service is then re rewarded by what? Further service and increased responsibility. <laughs> So if you're thinking the reward of God for faithful service is, oh, great, I get to go on the cloud and just play my harp for eternity. <laughs> Eternal sunset, you know, on the beach. You got a misconception of the goodness of labor. Biblically, work is a blessing and a gift from God, and we should see it as such. Biblically, so is rest. We're going to talk about that next Sunday, so come back. We get to... Work hard this week, we'll rest on Sunday, next Sunday. We look at Sabbath. But it's just a, a, a great thought to me to think about that. Look at, in Luke 19, verses 15 through 17. It says this, when he returned, having received the kingdom, Jesus is, is telling a parable that's very, very much similar to the parable we read here in the Olivet Discourse. When he returned, have, uh, having received the kingdom, this is the, the king that left, and he comes back. He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. 
And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. What does that look like? What, what does this reward of, of enlarged eternal authority look like? We don't exactly know in much clarity. We are told it's true, but we're not always sure what it's necessarily going to look like. But here's what I can be sure of. It's going to be full of joy. Full of so much intense joy because doing the Lord's will is going to be the most delectable food and drink of the redeemed. It ought to be now. How much more so then? Now, of course, we know that all servants are faithful servants, are wise servants. So Jesus, at the end of our text, addresses their plight as well. Faithful, wise receive a reward. The master, verse 50, of that servant, of the wicked servant, will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know, and he'll cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is certainly difficult language to read, and the suffering expressed in this parable of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of of grinding, of, of anguish, speaks of the eternal punishment of the wicked. The servant here that is experienced such judgment isn't because he's simply been lazy. But Jesus' point is that he's been monstrously unfaithful. He was a, a drunken glutton who beat his fellow servants. His life was a grotesque perversion that failed to see and heed the master's promise of his return, and therefore he lived life however he wishes, and now he's paying the price. We read these words and possibly we tremble. Because what Jesus is saying is here's two different servants, and we as professing Christians we who would attend church regularly, we who would be those who would, on a um, regular basis, consider ourselves Christians, it's sobering to think that sometimes people would profess things, but when you look at the life, if it's reflective of the life of an unbeliever, that, that the man or the woman who would consistently behave in an unchristian way, now listen, un consistently is the key because we all stumble and fall but Christians repent and there's the key and yet there are people at times who will profess Christ and yet may not truly know him and so Jesus says that punishment will be just that there will be justice, and that's the truth of what will happen when Christ returns. In the consummation of all things, everything will be revealed when Jesus returns. We must make sure then that our life matches our profession. That's the call here. Everything is going to be put right. The truth will be known finally at last. There will be justice on the earth, and it will be God's perfect justice, not man's imperfect justice. 
punishment will be just. In Luke 12, 47, Jesus says, And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what, it did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Why? Here's the principle. Every, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And I don't say that lightly. Because... If we're sitting under the preaching and the teaching and the word of God on a regular basis and we're living willfully, sinfully, we should be, we should repent quickly. Do not presume upon the grace of our God. We have so much, don't we? I mean, come on, we carry Bibles in our pockets everywhere. We have the word of the Old Testament. We have the word of the prophets. We have the word of the covenants. We have the word of the New Testament. We have the revelation of the incarnation. We have the gospel of grace. We have the life and teachings of Jesus. We have the apostolic witness and the teachings. We have 2,000 years of the church's testimony. We have abundant preaching and teaching. Christian education. Thousands of books a wealth of opportunities to whom much is given. Much is required. This is something I consider often because James writes something very sobering to my heart in chapter 3.1 when he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with stricter judgment, strict, greater strictness. So the call is to stay awake and be ready. How? Be faithful and wise. In the parable of the minas, or the, or the lamps, in Luke chapter 12 and verse 35, Jesus says this, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once. When he comes and knocks. That's what we should be doing. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Whoa! Did you see what I saw? You talk about reward? Here's the admonition. Be awake. Be ready, stay awake, stay dressed, keep your lamp burning. Don't let your light go out. Be faithful, be wise. Be doing the things that God has called you to do so you're ready when he comes. You don't have to all of a sudden work it up. You're living your life as a faithful servant of the king. What happens to those people? What a wonderful scene. Greets the master as he returns here. Can you just picture it with me? The, the, the story, the parable, the, the warm light that's streaming out the windows. These servants who are smiling and eager and they're bearing their lamps and they're gathered at the door and certainly there was a, a 
knock on the door. And it doesn't say this here, but in, in my mind, I see warm chocolate chip cookies and some chocolate abuelita right there waiting for the master. And they open the door and master comes in and they're greeting him. Welcome home, master. We're so glad you're back. Here, let us take your robe. Sit, master, sit. Let us wash your feet. You must be so tired. What a long journey it must have been. How wonderful that would be for those servants. But how much more wonderful it is for those servants in verse 37. When it says, truly I say to you, he, the master, will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. The master, so moved by their faithfulness, that instead of sitting down at the table, he dressed himself to wait on them. He sits them down around the table and serves them. What joy is portrayed in this beautiful passage. The girded master with a towel around his waist, putting the dishes before his servants, refilling their cups. Joyful, happy conversation flowing from the well-lit house. In just a few hours from the Olivet Discourse, the Lord would strip himself and would wrap a towel around his waist and would wash the feet of the twelve. And they were witnesses to an action that was both symbolic of his work in, in the incarnation and prophetic of the messianic meal of the kingdom when we will be gathered all with the saints of old. The wedding supper of the Lamb. At that meal, people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some who are first will be last. And the celebration... The future celebration is described gloriously in Revelation uh, chapter 19. As the music team comes to prepare for the pretaste of the meal. The communion. Listen to these beautiful words. They heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, 
Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's our reward, Christian. That's where we're going. So while we wait for that, while we wait for his return, be a faithful, wise servant. That's how you wait. Be about his business. The Christian life is a consistent, long obedience, joyfully walked in the same direction. So no matter whether he returns tomorrow or a thousand years from now, be ready. Be ready by living faithfully and wisely. Because he who testifies to these things, surely I am coming soon. And our response is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Father, we long for the day that your Son returns glorious, triumphant, conquering. I pray, though, while we wait for that day, we don't wait in a way that would deny what's required of us, in a way that would neglect responsibilities, in a way that would be unreliable. Oh, Lord, let us wait like the faithful servant so doing, doing your will, heeding your call, loving you with all we are and have, longing and looking forward to the reward of being with you forever. And so we say, come Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.